This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, dealing with some important and sensitive topics. We have covered them before, that is mental health awareness, addiction, suicide, but of course, each time we cover these issues, we do so through the prism of our guest and their unique personal story. This week, we do have a touching story. Gabby Spat shares her narrative and now the work that she's doing at the Blue Dove Foundation. Certainly an interesting name for any organization, and we get into the name choice and what it represents in the course of our discussion. Meanwhile, a reminder, sponsorships are available. Email jewsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. Jews You Should Know spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And please share the podcast with your friends and family and let them know to subscribe as well. And now to our conversation with Blue Dove Foundation Director, Gabby Spat. We're here with Gabby Spat of the Blue Dove Foundation, and uh, we're going to learn all about what that is. Hard to know just from the name itself, so I'm sure we'll get the background story of what it is and, and what it's all about. But first of all, how are you, Gabby? I'm good. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you, Ari. I'm so excited to chat with you and share my story with your listeners and be a part of this special podcast you've created. Amazing, amazing. So tell us a little bit, Gabby, about where you are from. Am I detecting like a tinge of a Southern accent? What, what's the accent I'm picking up on there? So I've been told that I have a little bit of a Southern um, accent that I, I guess, have acquired over the years. Actually, an Uber driver in San Francisco told me that for the first time <laughs> a couple years ago. But I actually was born and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I went to the University of Florida, best college ever, go Gators. Uh, if this was a video podcast, I would make you do the Gator, you know. <laughs> there you go. But for those listening, you, you can maybe hear the chop she's doing with her hands. <laughs> Super proud Gator. And while I was there, I fell in love with what college stands for. And while I was there, I started a tech company with a friend of mine for sororities and fraternities. We were 20 years old. We had no clue what we were doing. You know, our pricing structure was throwing a dart at a, a dartboard. It was hilarious. I did that for about, I don't know, eight or nine years and realized, you know, I'm 25, almost 26 years old living in Gainesville, Florida, which is the happiest place on earth if you're 18 to 22. But the Jewish community for single young adults was not thriving, if you can imagine, <laughs> and had the opportunity to move to Atlanta, which was a city I'd always enjoyed. I visited a few times in college and have been here about 11 years and just love this community. The Jewish Which area are you? Are you in Dunwoody or Sandy Springs, Marietta? Currently I'm in Sandy Springs, but you know, that has progressed as I, I moved here. I was 25. I lived right on the Beltline, the cool part of town. Buckhead or? Then I moved to Buckhead when I met my husband. 
right? So we're getting a little bit further north. And then we got married, we bought a house, and now we're Sandy Springs, but we're Sandy Springs ITP. So we're still inside the perimeter. So we like okay. to be a little cool still. There you go. Now, tell me, what was this tech company that you, uh, that you started in, in college? Yeah, it was called Group Interactive Networks on the gin system. And if you can think back to 2004, 2005, it was really the first of its kind of web-based system that came out. We were 19, 20, 21 years old. And, you know, we said, oh, we have 200 people in our sorority fraternity chapter. It's so hard to manage them. You know, let's put this online system together where we can manage these crazy people, right? We could send emails. We were doing automatic um, text message reminders, an online calendar, phone and email lists, et cetera, et cetera. And it grew, really actually became a technology consulting company for the sorority fraternity community where Facebook came out with their API. We built a Facebook integration. Then we had Facebook apps and we were building badge ordering systems, all kinds of crazy stuff. It was amazing. That sounds really cool. And uh, I guess it sort of eventually outlived its usefulness once you had these huge tech companies just floating Facebook and, uh, and so forth. No, it ended up getting sold a couple of years ago to a company that was kind of really becoming the tech company. So they had databases, they had recruitment programs, and they absorbed the chapter management system. So it still exists. It just has a different name now. Did you do also like financial stuff, dues collections and things like that? We did not because there were four or five companies that were already doing that back at that time. And they've all kind of been absorbed by this one company that's making a one-stop shop for these students. Very cool. All right, so just backing up actually a little bit, tell me a little bit more about your childhood, especially from a Jewish perspective. Yeah. You know, Fort Lauderdale, South Florida is super Jewish, obviously. Uh, I love that area. I love uh, my parents actually live in Boca part of the year, and yeah. I have two brothers down in South Florida. So I go down there and I love jet skiing. I'm a big uh, jet ski aficionado. So that's uh, my pleasures of, of South Florida. But what, what's your experience there growing up? So I think you you totally hit on it. Like, I'm a beach girl. You know, for me, living in Atlanta where the ocean is, you know, four or five hour drive away, it's like pains in my heart, you know, because we just love the beach. We love the ocean. We love the salt water. And, you know, we're fortunate enough that we get down there a lot. But growing up, I grew up, I personally think, the best way possible. My parents, they both were raised Jewish. My mom's parents were Holocaust survivors. They came in the early 1950s after the war. They met in a DP camp, had my uncle in Germany, settled in New Jersey and made their way, of course, to Florida naturally, right? The further south in Florida you go, the further north you go in the Northeast. (laughs) Exactly. You know, they were wonderful. They really showed us what it meant to have a Jewish community, to be a part of a community. And on the flip side, my dad's parents, my grandfather was from Canada, and my grandmother was born in the U.S. They were in, um, grew up in Detroit and Windsor, and of course naturally made their way also to Fort Lauderdale. Um, Sephardic, really. So I had, you know, these two different polarizing, you know, sets of grandparents who (laughs) I'm lucky today, my dad's parents are still alive, 94 and almost 103. Wow. 
But they really took that Ashkenazi cooking cultural experience to life, right? And so growing up, they each lived about 10 minutes away. And if someone was sick, you know, it was the argument. Well, who has frozen chicken soup? And who has this? You know, who could get there faster to kind of <laughs> pick, pick us up? My sister and I, my younger sister. And, you know, they both really just had this sense of Judaism and that it is a part of who we are, whether you're super religious about it or you can be super cultural about it or in faith and spirituality. And to have 30 people at a Passover Seder, whether it was at my grandmother's house or my mom started hosting it at her house, was completely normal. And I'm glad to say even today, like I host 30 person Passover Seders without COVID, of course. Yeah, not this year, right. But, you know, growing up, like we grew up in the synagogue. We went to the high holidays. There was bat mitzvah. And then there was no question you went straight into Hebrew high school, which gave me my Jewish identity. And it was really interesting because, you know, for Hebrew school for so many years, it was learning and writing and this prayer and that prayer. And Hebrew high school in Broward County, where I was, was a collection of students from all over the county. And we were taking classes on Fiddler on the Roof and Jewish cooking, right? So it really showed us this different part of being Jewish, kind of away from the the phonetics or the 101 kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I definitely think that was really ingrained in me. And also the idea of tikkun olam, right? And, and giving back. And that's always been a huge part of my family is being involved in the community, whether it's NCJW or it was the synagogue or it was the JCC. You know, we were always there. My grandparents took a huge active role in the Holocaust Survivors Association mm. of South Florida and in the community actually where they lived. And they were always bringing people together. You know, and I think from them, my mom's parents as being Holocaust survivors, you know, they had no family, tragically. The stories we hear and we hear and we hear. And their friends became their family, their mishpacha, right? And so for us, that was something that I've always taken close to heart too, and that my friends, and I have lifelong friends from since we're in diapers still, that they are my family too, and, and I have a small family. And so to be able to have that friend really, really shares it. And I think that's what the Jewish community is about too. Amazing. So did you, were you involved in any, like, were there youth groups going on when you were in high school? BBYO, USY, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I went to, we had USY. We were a conservative synagogue. The TBT tunes. And to be a part of USY was like, that's what you did. You know, there was no question. And being a part of USY, we had a large, large chapter. And then the surrounding chapters too. And we had the regional conferences and the state conferences and the sleepovers. I think you create like your Jewish identity and you create these friends and these experiences that you remember, you know, even Jewish sleepaway camp, right? Like yep. my mom sent me up to New York, to Long Island. So I'm this South Florida girl going up to camp in upstate New York with like all these Long Island girls. It was really fun. But I went because a friend of mine from Boston went to that camp and it was a camp run by a Holocaust survivor. And it was a kosher camp, so we always had Shabbat. Everyone got their own little holla rolls, I remember, and their <laughs> little Cornish hens. You know, but it was the same thing. It's like where you just get to disconnect and relax. What about at UF? I mean, nowadays, they, uh, according to some of the, the statistics, 
think Hillel's website says this, that Florida has the most Jewish kids of any school in the country. They say about 7,000 undergrads. I don't know if that, you know, exactly how accurate, but they're definitely, it's definitely up there as one of the most Jewishly populated campuses. Uh, what was it like when you were there a couple decades ago? So we still had that title. The, the largest number of Jewish students of any college campus, I think we were about 5,000 back then. You know, this is about almost 20 years ago, I guess. And when I was there, you know, I went through a sorority recruitment. I did not join a Jewish sorority. And to this day, one of the executive directors of one of the Jewish sororities says, I still don't understand why you didn't join my sorority. And I said, <laughs> well, you know, I really wanted a, just a different experience. Like Judaism, I knew was going to always be a part of my life. Um, it always was. It always, it always will be. But, and I knew there were other ways for me to engage in that too. So I was involved with Hillel, you know, which we had this tiny little Hillel building. Maybe we could see 100, maybe 120 people at, it at the time. And by the time I had graduated, they had built this two-story, brand new, took up an entire block building with a restaurant, a full kitchen. You could sit like 200 plus people classroom i mean just an incredible space was that keith dvorchik who was the director back then i think it was somebody just before keith i remember keith and there's a couple other people now too but it is the most gorgeous hillel building you could imagine and you know i went to chabad too sometimes which was really fun and the chabad rabbi you know they lived in the house and it was their Chabad space, but the outdoor space, they transformed into this incredible dining space where you had long tables and lights were hanging, you know, and whether you were there for a Shabbat or whether you were there for a high holiday dinner, it, it didn't matter. There were always <laughs> bottles of vodka, I remember, and the hello rabbi would say, boy, meat girl, drink vodka, make baby, you know, and that was kind of like his his stick. And it was fun. And everyone just felt at home and felt comfortable and had a place to go, which was what was really nice. That's terrific. Nowadays, there's another organization there called Yehudi. Some friends of mine run down there, which is a whole third avenue for Jewish education and, and things like that. But I know it's That's just a huge, a huge campus. I've actually never been. I would love to get down there. Oh, you have to go. <laughs> And you the make Hillel, it sound enticing, yeah. It's so great. And the Hillel directors now, they're actually a husband and wife. Okay. And the wife, she was actually, we were in college together. And so oh, okay. we've connected since they've been back there. But they do, you know, when they have college football games, they'll open up the Hillel and there'll be like a tailgate and people can <laughs> hang out. Because it's right across the street from the stadium. So it's a I thought you were going to say they charge for parking and that's a revenue generator. They don't have any parking. No parking. <laughs> Not in the center of downtown. No way. It's like that Maryland where I work. There's uh, the tailgating culture. I'm sure is not nearly what it is at Florida, but not not uh, SEC country. But still, uh, they do have something. And the churches all along, kind of like the road near, not even that close to the stadium, but close enough. Uh, the churches all open up their and they just charge for parking, and that's like a revenue generator for them. So. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of students who do that. You'll see the houses like lined at UF doing that. That's but, right. no. They must be Jewish students, you know. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> the on, the odds are they are, right? Statistically. That's right. So tell me a little bit about um, after you moved to Atlanta, what did you get involved with? And at some point you, you entered sort of the, 
mental health space and addiction space and all of that, which I want to get to. So what was going on in your life once you moved down to the Atlanta, which is of course a very, uh, I don't know when this is going to release, but right now George is kind of like in the the epicenter of the national politics. So um, we'll see when we actually release this, if that's still the case, but um, what, what happened when you got down there? I moved here. I remember I came to this city, had a job and I really knew nobody, but you know what? I've, if you've ever done the strength finders quiz, you know, yes. you go and it tells you your five strengths. My number one for most of my life has always been the woo, right? So, you know, I can be friends with anybody. I can talk to all. My name is Gabby, right? It means to talk. <laughs> so that I can handle. I moved to Atlanta. I actually was working um, for my sorority, for, which was our largest client at the time. And you know, she said, come try this. Like, I could really use your help. We need to build this out. We need to do this. And I was the director of alumni relations. And I got to travel the country, meeting our alumni, learning what people wanted, how to engage with people. And I did that for a few years. And you know, I'd always thought about philanthropy and how important that is. And like I mentioned, I grew up with the idea of Takuna alum and giving back. And I learned about you know family foundations and different kinds of foundations. And I had the opportunity to meet with Sarah Blakely the owner and founder of Spanx, the women's undergarment company, which, you know, you see me in movies mentioned in headlines and here and Spank flashes and everything. And I, I got to sit with Sarah Blakely, who's the Florida girl, who we connected first because her adoration was her grandma and her grandpa. And I love my grandma and grandpa, both of them still. And we connected and she grew up in Michigan and my family's from Michigan and we just had these like great conversations too. And they offered me a role, you know, we talked about being a part of her foundation at some point. And I, I got to work with Sarah Blakely for about three years on her personal team, which was amazing. And I learned about the business. I learned about her. I supported her. You know, she became a role model and a mentor and her husband is Jewish. And so I also got to connect with him and work some of the holiday stuff with, with them and their family. And while I was there, I'm always kind of thinking about philanthropy still in the back of my mind. And I have some wonderful mentors in Atlanta that I met. And an opportunity came available at the Schusterman Family Foundation, which is a large global, you know, Jewish family foundation. And at the time, I didn't know what it meant to say you worked at the Schusterman Foundation. And I have so much admiration for Lynn and Charles Schusterman and their daughter Stacy now, who's running the Schusterman Foundation. And I got to join their team that's based here in Atlanta, their reality team. And we focused on a trip to Israel, a life-changing journey. We took mostly unengaged Jews and non-Jews in their 20s and 30s who were change makers, who were influencers in their industries to Israel. And it was absolutely incredible to see how these people engaged with Israel, learned from Israel, were excited to be there, you know, marveled in the beauty of the north and the south and the craters and the the Mediterranean Ocean off the coast of Tel Aviv and the largest kibbutz we went to. And it was just amazing. And that, you know, was a whole nother side of kind of Judaism that I hadn't always experienced growing up in South Florida. It was all Jews, everywhere you look right? It was Jews, the synagogue, this, that, U.S., right? And um, this was a totally just different experience to 
expose them to Shabbat and for them to come home and just be, I'm going to do Shabbat all the time, right? And, and they just loved it. So that was the last full-time role I had. And I'd probably been in Atlanta about six years by then. And the first thing I did was connect with the Jewish community here. And I had leadership roles with the American Jewish Committee with their young adult program, Access, which focuses on global diplomacy and advocacy. And, you know, all of a sudden I got involved. I moved up. I was a vice chair. Then I was a co-chair and I was chairing this 40-person board for two years. And I had all these learning opportunities. And then I found myself having dinner with consul generals and talking about the relationship that their country has with Israel and their work in Atlanta, you know, with the community. And I was traveling the globe with AJC, doing advocacy work and diplomacy work in Japan and in the Ukraine. And I got to go to Israel and to Germany. And that really, I think, exposed me to the, the idea of global Jewry and the global Jewish community, um, you know, outside of the little bubble I had grown up in in South Florida. Fantastic. So you're really kind of making a name for yourself within this Jewish institutional world, I guess, both professionally and as a, as a lay leader, it sounds like. Um, and at some point, it's, you know, I want to sort of segue into some of the some of the events in your own personal life. Tell us a little bit about what was going on, I guess, in parallel to this on, on the personal end in your family and where that kind of led you. And I, I guess your life in a, in a bit of a different direction. So while I was at the Schusterman Foundation, I mentioned I had a lot of kind of unfortunate family trauma happen. It started in September 2017 when my younger sister passed away. She was 30 years old and she passed away from an opioid overdose, heroin laced with fentanyl. She was one of 22 people in South Florida. So there was a really bad batch of drugs going on. And she, she really did suffer, you know, her adult life with bipolar disorder and, and depression. So she made a choice that was kind of based on, on those ideas. And six weeks later, my stepdad, who I grew up with, had a stroke and was paralyzed. And six weeks later, my husband and I got married. And then I'm helping my mom and stepdad buy a house and all this crazy stuff. And I remember even saying to my rabbi, Rabbi Michael Gold, who we grew up with, he married my mom and stepdad almost 30 years ago. He did my sister and my bat mitzvahs. He did my sister's funeral. And I said, Rabbi, we're all mourning Sari. And then Norman, you know, now had this stroke. Like, how can I get married? And how can I find the joy? And he said, Gabby, you have to. Like, in Judaism... Weddings and babies really trump everything. And they want this for you. And I said, okay. And he was the, the rabbi that married my husband and I in early January 2018. And at that point, it was kind of like, what just happened in my life, right? Like trauma really happens. And there was so much of it in such a short amount of time that it was kind of like, Let's just get through the day to day. Like we need to get through the next day. We need to get through the next day. And in March, I kind of realized like what just happened. Like this is crazy. Like, you know, my sweet husband, I'm so fortunate. He let me take a year off to just kind of regroup, see what happened, figure it out. But in true Gabby world, I don't know how to relax. 
I was teaching business entrepreneurship camp at a Jewish day camp and I was consulting with a couture bridal company based out of Manhattan and an education tech company actually based in Gainesville, Florida and volunteering a lot. And during that time, I had gotten connected to a couple here in Atlanta who had just actually started the Blue Dove Foundation uh, through a mutual friend. And they are an incredible couple. She is a licensed clinical therapist her entire adult career. She came home one day, she said to her husband, we're starting an intensive outpatient treatment center rooted in Jewish values. And he's like, okay, good luck. Why are you telling me? Well, you have to run the business side of it. He's a serial entrepreneur kind of guy. And he's like, I know nothing about running a treatment center. And they opened their doors um, three years ago. And it was just incredible. This community has benefited so much. There was, you know, word of mouth and, and the program was full almost right away. And so a couple months later, they went to the URJ Biennial, which is a large you know, Jewish conference for the Reform congregation, about 5,000 people. And they just set up a table. They're like, let's do some market research, right? Let's see how rabbis respond to what we're doing and what we're talking about. Let's see how synagogue leadership and staff responds. Their little booth had a constant line to talk to them. They learned so much about what the community was looking for. And people were like, wait, we can talk about mental health and Judaism with my rabbi? This is a thing? You know, the topics go hand in hand? I'm like, yeah. And three months later, they came home and they started the Blue Dove Foundation. That was March 2018. And, you know, they quickly realized after the URJ conference the impact that they wanted to make on both the Atlanta community and the national Jewish community was more than just treatment. And it was about education, awareness, and outreach. What precipitated this vision for them? Were they, I mean, it sounds like she was a psychologist, but there's lots of psychologists out there. Yeah. Most of them don't kind of just launch these uh, these homes. What, what was she thinking? What need did she ascertain that, that she was trying to fill? So they both have a strong Jewish identity. She grew up in Atlanta, and her family has always been involved in the Jewish community. And so it, it really was that idea of giving back. And, you know, with this strong Jewish identity, she realized through her treatment, because she did mostly see... Jewish community members, that she could connect her work and healing with Jewish values. And through the idea of faith and through the idea of spirituality, that's what she started doing. And the feedback that she was getting from her clients was exactly like, I never thought about this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this gift. And she had one client particular an Orthodox mother who had lost her high school daughter at the time to a heroin overdose. And at that time, it was about five, six years ago, Atlanta had something called the heroin triangle. And it was, it was pretty bad. And, you know, her daughter grew up again in Jewish day school and just, just like my sister, met the wrong group of people. And, you know, she was sent into treatment. And while she was in treatment, she wanted to go home for Shabbat, and the treatment facility said no. Passover was coming up, her favorite holiday. Traditionally, she'd always cook with her mom. 
And the treatment center said no. So the founders of the Blue Dab Foundation started the treatment center. And it is outpatient versus um, inpatient. So it is a little bit different in, in that respect. But they wanted to take those Jewish values and those ideas of community, ideas of culture, of faith, of spirituality, and fuse that together with the healing process. And every Friday, they have a rabbi that does a spirituality session. It's always, every week, the most popular session that happens. And so that's really where the idea came from, is her Jewish identity and learning and being involved in studying and then working with her patients and seeing how important that faith piece can be in their healing and in their moving forward and talking about rituals, right? And Judaism, as you know, is full of rituals. And so that's what's really allowed them to build this curriculum. And while it's based in Jewish values, you could go there one week, it could be 80% Jewish. The week after, it could be 30% Jewish. Um, and it, it's just grown through word of mouth. People have actually come from out of state to go to this program, whether they're staying with friends or they're staying in a hotel for the amount of time that they need. That's what really pushed them to realize that, again, the impact they wanted to make was more than just treatment. And it was about education, awareness, and outreach in the community. And if we can put ourselves out there, if we can put this topic out of one we need to talk about, of one that our community struggles just the way any other community struggles or any other individual struggles, then we can really begin to create a more welcoming, a more knowledgeable, and a more engaging Jewish community that creates this space for all. What kind of mental health challenges did they principally set out to address, was it? It sounds like a lot of um, people struggling with drug addiction, um, but but is it also more non-pharmaceutical kind of things, but bipolar, is uh, anxiety, depression? What are they addressing specifically? Yeah, so through the treatment facility, the Berman Center, it is a mental health and addiction treatment center. And an intensive outpatient treatment center, you know, a lot of people might use it as a step-down program. So if you are leaving an, an in-person treatment center, you're not done. There's still always, always work to be done. You know, it's, it's a constant battle every day. And so an outpatient treatment center gives you that ability to have a little less of a rigid kind of treatment program. But you can go, and so particularly in their program, it's three days a week group programming for four hours, and twice a week individual therapy, talk therapy. So they have a gamut of, you know, people struggling with mental health issues from bipolar disorder to anxiety, personality disorders, you know, some severe anxiety, and then also addiction. And through their work weekly, they choose group programming that have different topics through, there's a lot of different therapies available. You talk therapy, you have art therapy, you have music therapy, right? Moving your body, physical therapy. That is all the kind of stuff that they do there. Incredible. So do are the drug treatment programs and other mental health kept separate or is it kind of like two separate divisions or it's one? So a lot of it is mixed together. And then they have specific group programming that will gear go towards 
the addiction part or will go towards something else. But the individual, what's really nice about this program is they get to pick their electives. And so they get to choose also in some ways the treatment that they're creating for themselves and where they want to learn. And it's it started with 18 and over and by requests and requests and requests, they actually started a teen program about two years ago. They have three tracks of the teen program and there is a constant waiting list. I couldn't imagine being a teenager right now. And just in general, even pre-COVID, right? It was... It's a complicated world they're growing up in, different than the one I grew up in, that's for sure. 100%. And parenting them is also more difficult, I imagine. Oh, not there yet, not there yet. I am. (laughs) Just take my word for it. (laughs) I'll take your word. I'll call you in about years. I'll be happy to dispense uh, any, any advice for whatever it's worth. So Gabby, how did you get involved? I mean, you were going, obviously, again, it's sort of a parallel track. You were, you were struggling with your own yeah. personal traumas. Your sister, of course, you know, blessed memory, she, she had passed away from this kind of difficulties. And, and so obviously, I, I guess it was very personal to you, but where did that connection come into play? And was it sort of when, the, when these tragedies manifest, were you like, okay, I need to, I want to, I want to sort of dedicate my life now to something in that space as sort of a, a way of healing for yourself? Kind of back on that timeline we were talking about. So they started the foundation, the Blue Dog Foundation, in March 2018. And that was the time when I had left my job and I was just trying to figure it out. And one of their clinicians and I grew up in Florida together and our families are friends and he moved up here to join the Berman Center. And he said, Gab, you should really talk to Justin and Eliza. And they're starting a nonprofit that's focused on this kind of stuff. And I did. And, and I'd known Justin for years through the American Jewish Committee. And I called him and he's like, hey, you know, what's going on? And I said, dude, I hear you have this, you know, organization. How can I help? I want to be involved. You know, and I told him the story of my sister losing her. And he said, like, great. We have no plan. We just started. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm good at anything. So I just jumped right in. And, and you know, now a couple of years later, he is a mentor an incredible boss and, and somebody I learn from every day. And my, you know, the first program we started planning was May of 2018. And 200 people in the Atlanta community came out. We held it at a synagogue. It was called Quieting the Silence. It was a term him and his wife had come up with. And the idea is that we want to stop the silence, like quiet the silence and talk. And the program started with a local rabbi, here Rabbi Bradley Levenberg from Temple Sinai, who shared his personal reflections and thoughts about how mental health and Judaism are connected. And then three Jewish individuals from the Atlanta community stood up and shared their personal stories, addiction, suicide, and anxiety. And after they all shared, there was a Q&A with local Jewish clinicians. One was from the local Jewish Family and Career Services, a couple others, and, and the speakers. And if you stood in the back of that room, you saw 200 people hugging, crying, holding each other if they came with somebody. And it was such a powerful night that people came out and for whatever reason they came out. They're struggling themselves. They want to learn. They're supporting a friend of theirs who was speaking. 
it doesn't matter. It made a statement that 200 people in the Atlanta Jewish community wanted to talk about mental health and addiction and wanted to learn about mental health and addiction. You know, and, and we're a volunteer-run organization at this point. And, you know, for us from day one, it was the idea of partnerships and who in the community is ready to stand up and support this topic. And so the program had, you know, five or six different partners. We had resource tables available. And Atlanta's unique. We actually have a lot of, of resources available when it comes to mental health and addiction in the Jewish community. There is a group out of the JFNCS called Hamsa that's been around for a few years, helping Atlantans manage substance abuse. Um, there's something called Derek Transitional Living, which is a sober living facility. The Chabad in town has a place called Jeff's Place, which has dedicated their programming to mental health and addiction programming in town um, after losing a, a member of their congregation to an overdose. And, Nobody knew he was in recovery. Nobody knew he was struggling. So we're really lucky. And the second program we hosted was in October 2018 at Congregation B'nai Torah, also here in Atlanta with Rabbi Joshua Heller. And we did the same, the same format, quieting the silence, a teen night of mental health conversation, education, and awareness. Another 200 people showed it was just eye-opening to really see this community. And we had the resources out again, and we're lucky enough to have an organization called JumpSpark here in Atlanta. It's part of the Jewish Teen Funder Collaborative in, in 10 different cities. And JumpSpark focuses a lot on mental wellness in the Jewish community. And they were there sharing their resources, of course, and JFNCS and the crisis text line and the suicide prevention line. And the National Alliance on Mental Illness, all these local chapters. And the next step was raising some money. And we were really lucky to get a seed grant from the Marcus Foundation here in Atlanta, who historically has invested in, you know, startup kind of organizations. And we're grateful for them. And all of a sudden, I was back at work full time in, in April 2019. And a year and a half later, it is incredible, incredible to see how the Atlanta Jewish community continued to talk about this. But now, particularly, right, on the feet of COVID, how the global Jewish community, how the national Jewish community has rallied around this topic. There are meetings that I sit in with 40 plus Jewish organizations across the country, all focusing on teen mental health conversations. They are thinking about this from local levels of organizations that exist, whether they're a Jewish Family and Career Service or not, from synagogues who have created their own initiatives. Particularly, there's a great one out in California, um, Rodef Shalom. They have a program called Real. They've been doing it for about five years, maybe six years now. And it started with the rabbi who lost a family member to suicide. And they have a a Jewish social worker on staff who focuses on mental health education programming. But this community, and, and I think Atlanta is unique, and then maybe part of it is because, you know, we are based here and we were doing so much initially. But COVID has allowed us that silver lining that we all look for 
to really branch out and to expand our programming. This week, we actually have three programs. Tonight, we're doing Coping with COVID with a local Jewish congregation, Congregation Etzchayim. Tomorrow night, we are kicking off our book tour with our published book, Quieting the Silence, which is available on Amazon. And we're kicking it off in Houston with the JCC, who runs their book festival as a teen program. And then on Thursday night, we are continuing part of our series, also um, coping with COVID with the Jewish Grandparents Network, which we've done a few different sessions and we're actually creating small group spaces for grandparents to connect and cope with COVID. So it's a busy week, in addition to all the other stuff that's going on. But we're excited for it all. So do you really see Blue Dove as trying to make this national impact now? And do you, do you think there's a role for it? I mean, there's lots of organizations out there. What, what do you think is sort of the distinguishing feature that will allow you guys to really make that broader impact? Yeah. So, it, you know, we are a national organization. We have been working with synagogues, with Jewish organizations, with Jewish individuals for a long time. Last December, we presented at the URJ on um, addiction in the Jewish community. But I think in, in our role, you know, like I mentioned before, we're really this community quarterback. We have encouraged the community to talk about this topic, right? And what's I, I like to say, we infuse a little bit of mental health into Judaism, and a little bit of Judaism into mental health. And multiple times a week, we're getting requests from individuals saying, I want to get involved, what can I do? Or an organization saying, I want to do a program, can you help me? And we have our own you know, existing programs um, that are there. But we also, what I think is unique is we recognize that every organization is different. You might be a conservative synagogue in Atlanta, but you might be a conservative synagogue in Cincinnati, Ohio, and they're not the same community. And so we really create something that works specifically for your own community. I think that's what's really nice. You know, on the other hand, focusing on our awareness and outreach, I mentioned before we published a book and it's called Quieting the Silence, Personal Stories. It's a collection of personal stories dedicated to raising awareness, understanding, support, and hope for those who struggle with mental illness and addiction in the Jewish community. And the idea of it came from our in-person programming of storytelling, of creating something that shows people they're not alone. And it covers topics from anxiety, depression, suicide, bipolar disorder, women's infertility, LGBTQ plus, you know, pieces. And there's even three rabbis who have shared their personal stories in this book. And we wanted to be able to give that to more people than just programs, whether they're in person or, you know, they're on Zoom or Facebook Live now, of course, which we do. And so the book has done that. And like I mentioned, we're kicking off our book tour in Houston tomorrow night, which we're really excited and our programs planned all through next year. We've also developed, which I like to call a labor of love, a Jewish mental wellness toolkit, which came out of about 50 interviews of Jewish individuals from rabbi, clergy members, Jewish professionals, Jewish volunteers, from camps, from staff, etc. 
And the first part is about creating a welcoming and knowledgeable community and making mental wellness our Jewish community culture. We have eight Jewish midot, Jewish values, that we've identified as an organization that speak to us. And we also lay, you know, the, the land for definitions. A lot of people think mental wellness, mental health, and mental illness are interchangeable. And they're not. And, you know, to the everyday person, this stuff is tough to digest. And so we really break it down in an easy way. And we have a whole section dedicated to Jewish prayers, rituals, and resources, where we list, you know, examples of Jewish prayers for healing. We talk about Shabbat and this incredible gift that the Jewish people are given. I mean, can you imagine being commanded for 25 hours to just stop and relax, right? And when people do that, it makes such a difference in who we are. And so we already have this gift to take care of ourselves that other cultures don't, right? And that's also an example of how we can learn from our Judaism. We talk about the mitzvah and the healing that exists there. And the second part of the toolkit is recognition, response, and the road to healing. So for the everyday individual who's not a clinician, how do you recognize someone who's struggling? How do you respond to them? We have ways that, you know, maybe you want to say this. Definitely don't say this. And where you can learn more. And we have two workshops available that we host just general workshops through our website or specific for Jewish organizations. What are some of, like one or two, obviously we don't have time to go through all eight or whatever, but what are some of the Jewish values when, when you, you, people hear you speak about the blending or the harmonizing of Judaism with mental health, mental health, mental wellness, mental well-being. I myself don't have the definition, so you'll have to forgive that. I'll have to read the book. But what are some of the, the, the core values that you are promoting that you think have an impact on mental well-being? The way to kind of frame that is we believe Midot empower us to connect Jewish thought to mental wellness. Jewish literature and discussion have focused on healing, wellness, and community for years, yet we often shroud mental health into a cone of silence. And so we've identified some of them, and to just kind of briefly mention, the idea of B'Tselem Elohim, created in God's image, mm-hmm. right? Or Kol Yisrael Avraham Zelazet, all Jews are responsible for one another. This is a big one. Refuah Shlimha, healing and wholeness. And for each of these, we identify, right, a story that relates to them and how we believe it connects back to mental health. When we recite a Mishaberach for healing, we pray for refuat hanefesh, verufat haguf, a healing of spirit and body. And we really think about that mind and, and that spirit that's there. Chesed u'gevura, balancing loving kindness and discernment, right? And so being that person that puts yourself out there, not to diagnose somebody or fix them, but to support them with loving kindness, with acceptance. Pekua nefesh, saving a life, right? That is a huge, a huge part. The Talmud tells us that. No se be'elim chevaro, sharing the burden of one's friend. There's a couple more. 
Lifnei Iver, before the blind, inclusivity. So really focus on creating a welcoming and an inclusive environment. And Tikkun Olam, repairing the world, making the world a better place. And within Tikkun Olam, we also identify the idea of Tikkun HaNefesh, repairing your soul. And to be an individual that can go out there and that, you know, to make it a verb that can Tikkun Olam, that can repair the world, you have to make sure that your self, that your own soul is in a good place. And when that happens, incredible things happen. And these are all on our website under our resources too. So anybody's welcome to learn more about them. The other part where we as an organization really excel is creating tools and resources. And for the high holidays, which passed, which no one ever thought were going to be the way that they were, right? And we had a whole high holiday campaign where we had several resources. Uh, we had a Rosh Hashanah self-care guide where it connected Rosh Hashanah items to creating a self-care experience. And at the end, you were challenged to write your own type of Shahachianu prayer of something new, something you experienced, something you're grateful for. We had a mental health Tashlik. We had Sukkot Shlimut. So really focusing on wholeness and peacefulness. And you were able to print out and cut out your own lulav and etrog. And it walked you through different exercises where you reflected on what happened and where the prompts are and how we connect and how we shake the lulav and etrog. And we had a whole mental health high holiday guide for clergy and for synagogue leadership, mental health shofar blasts that people could offer in addition to the normal shofar blast reading. And the last piece, one area where we do a lot with, and it, it's gone over really well time and time again, is creating different versions of Misha Beirach prayers. So a, a traditional prayer, you know, that's often been cited for somebody that's sick, that's in the hospital. Let's rethink that. Let's think about somebody who's in recovery and pray for their continued recovery. Let's think of somebody who's struggling with anxiety and depression and pray for their peace, right? And so that's really where I was saying before, we infuse a little bit of mental health into Judaism and a little bit of Judaism back into mental health. Why is it called the Blue Dove Foundation? Always a good question. <laughs> and there is a perfect explanation on the website and in all of our materials, of course. But the idea is going back to the book of Genesis, where Noah released a dove after the great flood. Of course, we know that story. And when the dove came back carrying a freshly plucked olive leaf, to him it was a sign of life, right? Of God's bringing Noah, his family, the animals to renewed land. And in our mind, the dove really represents peace of the deepest kind. It can soothe, it can quiet our worried or troubled thoughts, enabling us to find renewal in the silence of our minds. So it could be a spiritual messenger, you know, a maternal symbol or liaison in part to inner peace. So, you know, ultimately we think bringing peace, life, and hope and freedom for those facing addiction or other mental health challenges is our goal. And we look at our Jewish stories to give us some of those examples. And we happen to believe the, the dove is a part of that. It's beautiful. You picture that dove sort of flying off. 
towards freedom and, and searching. It's exactly the image if you go to the website, the flying image on the website. I'm not. I'm not going to ask for royalties. Don't worry. But uh, <laughs> you know, you're flying off instead of searching for firm ground, you know, and stable ground, and and um, it's kind of what people are doing in this in this position, the situation. Just in closing, Gabby, how often do you think about your sister, and especially in the context of this work? Sari obviously went through and what maybe she could have gained from a program like this had it been around and is that something that frequently is animating your your day-to-day involvement there's tough stories to tell right when you talk about your personal struggles or you talk about your family struggles but for me it's something that I adapted with quickly if I can share my family's stories maybe there's somebody out there that it touches and shows that they're not alone so I do think about it daily because I talk about it daily. It's not unusual for me to mention that. And I think this organization has given me the biggest gift. It's given me the idea of healing, the idea of learning, right? Of creating community of understanding and welcoming. But ultimately, as we talked about in the beginning, I'm a busy person, right? I like to be involved. I'm involved. The only way that I know how to make change happen is by doing. And that's ultimately my work. And I share my story. It's the first story in in the book that I mentioned, and it's on our website. But to make an impact, I truly believe you have to be a part of it. And so while I do not have a mental health background, I have, of course, learned a lot. And I always defer to the experts. You know, anything that Blue Dove puts out, that anything we create is reviewed by clinicians, Jewish educators, rabbis, etc. Fantastic. And just finally, Gabby, where can people learn more? I guess everyone can just Google Blue Dove Foundation, but is there a specific website or a specific social media feed or something that you prefer to direct people towards? Thank you. Always a wonderful part to share this. So, you know, I shared a lot. I talked about a lot. If you want to see what any of that looks like, please visit us online www.thebluedovefoundation.org we're also on instagram and facebook at the blue dove foundations you can find us there and on our website you're also able to sign up for our newsletter we do not send a lot so you won't be spammed but if you're at all interested in the jewish mental health conversation please sign up for it there's incredible stories that are shared we always share articles we're reading, where we might be so you can join us at a program. And everyone, this is a tough conversation. And if we can impact one life daily to us, that's a huge impact. Absolutely. Well, Gabby, thank you so much for sharing your story as well as the Blue Dove story. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.